0: We're going to look for a moment this after this morning at uh, Paul's letter to the Romans. Remembering what we read in Psalm 124 and remember what we read in uh, Mark chapter 15. If you turn with me to Romans chapter 8. And this is one of these magnificent verses. Verse 31, Romans 8. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us. Who can be against us if God is for us? So the, the journey of the faithful in the Old Testament times, the people of God would journey uphill to Jerusalem, and they would sing those songs of ascent, and they would sing to remind each other of God's faithfulness, they would sing to encourage one another... And that great psalm, if the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, if the Lord had not been on our side, we would have been swallowed alive. And that reminder of the time and time again where God intervened, rescued, restored, redeemed a people for himself. God is for us. At ETS, uh, Edinburgh Theological Seminary, where I teach, we had a visiting professor, uh, a theological educator, and he was encouraging us, and he said, one skill to develop, he said, is, can you summarize what you teach in just a few words? So if somebody says, you teach church history, what does that look like? Or you teach the New Testament or the Old Testament? So as someone who teaches systematic theology, I took that challenge to heart. And I figured that I could describe my subject, Christian theology, in nine words. Three groups of three words. The first set of three words is God with us. That's the incarnation. God has come down. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. The very, one of the titles or the names that Jesus was given, Emmanuel, which means God with us. So God with us. The second set of three words is here in our text, Romans 8.31, God for us. The death of Jesus demonstrates that God is not remote, God is not neutral. God is not detached. But God is for us. He is on our side. He wants us to be on His side. And the third set of three words is God in us. That text from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 21, which tells us that we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. God, through the Spirit, His Spirit dwells in our hearts. And the subject I teach, therefore, is God with us, God for us, and God in us. And notice that the first of each of those sets of three words is God. What God has done, what God is doing, what God promises, and what God provides. Our response is very important. But God takes the initiative. God comes down to earth in the person of His Son. God pays the price on the cross. Jesus sacrifices Himself to satisfy the debt that we ourselves have created. And the Holy Spirit now takes up dwelling within God's people to give you strength instead of weakness, to give you wisdom instead of folly, to give you the ability and the capacity to live upright and godly lives. God is for us. And this portion of Romans chapter 8 is just, just magnificent. You see, the Apostle Paul is speaking to an audience here. And he's not speaking to an audience of the great and the good, He's not speaking to the power brokers. He's not speaking to the significant members of the culture or the society. He's not speaking to the powerful or the strong. But he's speaking to weak people. Fragile people. Flawed people. People who experience firsthand hardship and heartache. People who are vulnerable and marginal. Just like us. His audience is just like us. Different culture, yes, different setting, yes, but the same challenges and the same difficulties that we encounter today, he's speaking to exactly the same audience then. So Paul begins with a proposition, if God is for us, who can be against us? On the 4th of July, 1776, the American Declaration of Independence, one of the opening paragraphs begins, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And this great rhetoric is a way of introducing a document, a theme, a a movement to say to a people, this is who you are, this is what you are called to do, and this is why these particular things are happening. And this proposition that God is for us shapes our identity or should shape our identity. Because even as Christians, we can sometimes think that God is far away. He's remote, he's distant, he's uninterested, unconcerned, doesn't know, doesn't care. But Paul is saying, what shall we say? How can we respond to this great proposition? If God is for us, who can be against us? Abraham Lincoln, as an American, I have to use American illustrations. Even after 34 years, I still revert to, to type. Abraham Lincoln, during the American Civil War, was often asked, Is God on our side? Mr. President, is God on our side? And he responded to one of his um, uh, questioners by saying, Sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side. For God is always right. So this proposition, God is for us, Brings a challenge, does it not? Because God is stating His intention. God is stating His commitment. God is stating this proposition on our behalf. And it implies that we need to do something in reply. We need to do something in return. If God is for us, am I on His side? Am I trusting in Him? Have I received this great gift of salvation? Have I received this great work which He has done on our behalf? Because Paul then takes this proposition and gives to us personal and powerful guarantees. Last night I I spoke a bit about my work in prisons. I've been going in and out of prisons for Almost 30 years. And over the years, you begin to build up a knowledge of criminal procedure. I'm not a lawyer, but I feel if I had to, I could probably practice in, you know, in the criminal courts because I'm now, I'm familiar with process and procedure and indictments and all these things. But one thing that I've gleaned is that there seems to be three stages to a criminal proceeding. The Apostle Paul is identifying each of those three stages. The first step in any proceeding is a charge, an accusation. The next step is some form of a trial, which determines whether the accusation is true or false. There's a verdict to be made. And thirdly, is that if there's a charge, and if the charge is proven to be true, there is some form of penalty. Uh, and what, what Paul does here, he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? So that's his proposition. And then he goes on to, to show to us that we can have a personal confidence or a personal guarantee that's based not on us. You see, the good news here is that your standing with God is not based on the strength of your commitment to him. Your standing with God is not based on your knowledge or understanding of Him. Your your status and standing with God is not based on what you do for God. But Paul is making it quite clear that the standing and status that we have is completely rooted in what God has done for us. So verse 32, "...he who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things?" So if God has given us the most precious of gifts, if God has provided the most important of provisions, whatever else we might require, he will gladly and freely give. He's given the best, the greatest. Will he not also along with him give us all things?" all things that we require, all things that we need, all that is necessary for, to get us from where we are to where God wants us to be. Now the first stage of the prosecution begins in verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Who will bring a charge? And you might think, well, many people could bring a charge. And many of those charges we would have to put up our hand and say... Yes, guilty as charged. I did say that. I did do that. I didn't think that. And maybe even more condemning is the charge of those things that we have left undone. You're right. I never did get to that. You're right. I never did say that and I should have said that. But who will bring a charge against those whom God has chosen? The answer? It is God. Who justifies God declares you and I right in his sight there is no basis now for a charge because this work has been done on our behalf and you ask well how is it that God justifies how can God declare me to be right when I know that I'm wrong how can God declare that I am accepted when I know deep down that I don't deserve to be accepted God works, God justifies, God provides. And in a sense Paul is saying, the answer to this question, who can bring a charge? The answer is Jesus. There's no charge that can be that can be set against God's people. Why? Because of what Jesus has achieved on the cross. Verse 34 is the second stage of the prosecution. Who is he? That condemns. If you're charged, and if you're found guilty, that's a problem. So I remember, and so I generally am law-abiding, you'll be happy to know, but as I was traveling out of Brora, beautiful summer day, east coast of Scotland, and I was convinced that the speed limit was 40 miles an hour leaving Brora. Now you might ask if you were convinced that the speed limit was forty miles an hour. Why was I traveling at fifty miles an hour? That's again, that's another. That's we don't want to. That's we don't want to nitpick. But nonetheless, I was traveling fifty miles an hour outside of Brewer, a beautiful summer's evening, and of course there was a speed a police speed van. And actually, the speed limit was not forty. The speed limit was thirty. So then in the course of events, I received a notification from the chief constable indicating that I was exceeding the stated speed limit. So I was charged and I had to put my hand up and say, guilty. It was me. It was my car and I should have known better. Paul says, who will, who is he that condemns? And the answer again is Jesus Christ. Christ, Jesus, Christ Jesus who died more than that, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and is also interceding for us. So he's taking us through this procedure. Is there a basis for a charge? No, it's God who justifies. Is there any possibility of condemnation? No. Jesus Christ, he died, and he rose again, and what's more, he's at the right hand Of God in heaven. You've heard the phrase, it's not what you know, but who you know. And that's so true of the gospel. It's important to know what the Bible says. It's important to know God's word and what God has done. But first and foremost, we need to know him. We need to know Jesus. There's a famous story, an American evangelist was visiting London, a very big man, a man called D.L. Moody. And the story was told of a young man who from the east end of London walked all the way across the big city because he wanted to hear the great evangelist preach. And he came to the church, this large church where Moody was scheduled to preach, and as you can imagine, this young man who was quite poor, he wasn't well-dressed, he wasn't particularly clean, uh, so he comes to the, to the door of the, of the church, and the, the man standing on the door said, where do you think you're going? And the, and the boy said, I've come to hear the American evangelist, Mr. Moody. Not looking like that, you don't. And the boy was devastated, and he sat down on the curb, and he began to cry. Just then, a carriage pulled up and the door opened and the gentleman stepped out and said, Young man, what's wrong? Why are you so upset? And the young man said, I've come to hear the great evangelist, Mr. Moody, but they won't let me in. And the gentleman said to him, well, let's see what we can do. He put down his hand, put out his hand, the boy put his small hand into the man's big hand and they walked up to the, to, the, to the front door. And the same man that had said, no, you can't come in, smiled and opened the door. And the big man and the boy walked right to the front of the, the auditorium. And he sat him down in the front row. There was space. And then, as you can imagine, the man who had brought him in was none other than the evangelist himself. So it's not what you know, but it's who you know. And what Paul is telling us, it's not what we know, but it's who we know, because it's Christ Jesus, He died, He was raised, He's at the right hand, and He is speaking on your behalf. Sometimes if we're honest, we say, you know, I know I should pray, but I don't really pray all that often. I know I should read the Bible, but I find it difficult to read the Bible. Let me tell you that Jesus' prayer life is consistent and persistent. That He prays when you don't pray. That He's there when you are inconsistent. So no charge can stand. Why? Because God justifies. No condemnation is possible. Why? Because Jesus was condemned. Jesus was punished. Jesus died and Jesus was raised to life. And the third... Uh, step in a prosecution and you know when I put my hand up uh, and said to the chief constable yes I was traveling at 50 miles an hour outside of Aurora on that date well there was a separation some of my money was separated from me and the people that I meet uh, tomorrow morning these are people who have been separated from their family separated from their liberty and in the case uh, where criminal, where capital punishment occurs The separation is from life itself. So the the next step is, in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So who can make a charge? No one. Why? Because God justifies. Who can condemn? No one. Because Christ Jesus died, was raised, and is seated at the right hand. And who can separate us? Now this is an audience that feels very vulnerable. This is an audience that feels very weak. These are not the strong, but the weak. These are not the wise, but the foolish. And their answer to that is, well, it seems like we can be separated in so many different ways. Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. All of these were the common experience of early Christians. They were not strong. They were not wealthy. They were not secure. So they experience trouble and hardship and persecution and famine and nakedness, danger or sword. And Paul says, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, in all these things, danger and famine, nakedness, sword, hardship, troubles, trials, persecutions, you name it. In all these things. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. In the New Testament, the authors use language very well. Sometimes they take words that are there in the Greek language, but aren't that common, and they put into them new meaning, new understanding. You know, that word for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. This word for love was not well used prior to the New Testament. So it's as if John 3.16 divines the word love as sacrifice, self-giving, providing what is needed, caring to such an extent. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. Now here is an example where Paul takes an existing word, conqueror, but says this word is inadequate to describe the Christian. So he makes a new word. He puts a, a Greek word together with a, with, with a prefix and says, no, you are more than conquerors. Or one of the ancient translators said, you are an overcoming overcomer. Meaning, the audience would have understood what a conqueror was. The idea of a conquering general, the emperor himself. You see, in in, in ancient Rome, you had uh, what was called a Roman triumph, a parade. Whenever there was a great military victory, the whole city would turn out. And there would be a parade. Sometimes it would last days because the city was so large. And at the beginning of the parade there would be the spoils of war, the the treasure that was captured, the prisoners of war, the slaves, those who had been captured in battle. And then the foot soldiers would come next. And then the officers, the generals, uh, the politicians, the senators would come next. But last in this procession would be the Roman conqueror, the conquering general or the emperor himself. And everybody would wait to see this character, this figure, to see with their own eyes the general that won the great battle or the emperor who defeated the great foe. And Paul says to this group of poor, weak, vulnerable, marginal Christians, that picture of a conqueror is inadequate to describe you. You are far more than that conqueror. Far greater, far more significant, far more secure. And you see, we find this so difficult because we think, no, no, we're not conquerors, we're conquered. We're not victors, we're vanquished. We're not strong, we're weak. We're not wise, we're foolish. But Paul says that God has a way of looking at you in a way that we don't look at ourselves. If God is for us, who? can be against us. I've often said to my class, I said, if the Bible describes you in a certain way, if God describes you in a certain way, and you describe yourself in another way, somebody's wrong. Somebody's mistaken. You have to determine who's wrong. Is God's description of you inadequate, inaccurate? Or might your own description of yourself be inadequate or inaccurate? Because Paul goes on to say, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there's no basis for a charge. There's no possibility of a condemnation. There's no conceivable way in which you or I can be separated. Why? Because the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord is a powerful love. Is a personal love, is a persistent love, is a persevering love. You see, God holds on to his own. He won't let you go. Mark chapter 15 detailed the death of Jesus, his sufferings, the mockery, you know, the the taunts, the abuse. And you think, who would do such a thing willingly? Who would place himself in such a position? The hardship, the suffering, the mocking, the taunting, the beating, the death. And the death in such a shameful way. And yet Jesus willingly placed himself there. Paid the price. Satisfied the debt. Why? So that you and I could be set free. You and I could be brought into a new and a living and a lasting relationship with God J.I. Packer a, the, the late theologian he encouraged people he said tell yourself six things every day six things every morning and I could even add say, say them to you at, yourself at the end of every day and he said the six things are this I am a child of God God is my father Jesus is my elder brother Heaven is my home, every day is one day closer, and every Christian is my brother or my sister. This is what Jesus Christ has achieved. God with us, God for us, God in us. God has taken us to be part of his family. And when God brings us into his family, it's a permanent translation. It's a permanent adoption Many years ago, I'm now 57, when I was six months old, my parents, Denny and Ruth Aykroyd, adopted me into their family. I was not fostered. I was not a lodger. I was a member of the family. And that change changed my life forever. My new, new parents, new sister, new relationships, new home... God brings us into His family, and it's a permanent relationship. He is our Father, Jesus our elder brother, and each one of us who has a shared faith and a shared Savior, we too are brothers and sisters in the Lord. So in a few moments we are going to remember the death of Jesus. We are going to remember the price that He paid. And I want you to remember these three propositions. That God is with us, that God is for us, and that God is in us. This was the need that we had. If we simply had a need to be educated, to be corrected, to be shown the way, why would Jesus have to die? Why would He have to suffer in the way that He did? If we could fix the problem ourselves, why does the Holy Spirit have to dwell within me to give me wisdom and strength or comfort or courage? So remember that God is with you, that God is for you, and that God through His Spirit now dwells within you. And the work that He begins, He promises to bring that work to completion. What shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? The only things I can say that we that, that suggest that we might be able to say is Amen. Thank you. Wow. This is remarkable. This is unbelievable. This, I can't, I can't take it in, but if you say it, I'm going to believe it, God. So are we willing to believe what God has to say about us? Are we willing to believe what God has to say about His Son, Jesus? Because if we believe what God says about us and what God says about His Son, then what then follows is that yes, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. May God bless his word. May God bless his work. And may God show to us that what he says he means, what he means he says, and what he provides, he powerfully applies to the human heart, to the human mind, to the human life. And if you are one of his children, the day will come when he will take you home. In the meantime, every encouragement, every strength, every comfort, He provides along the way. His word that we've heard preached, His death that we will soon remember. Each of these is a way for us to be strengthened along the way. Let's pray. Father, thank You for every good gift. Thank You for Jesus on the cross. Thank you for Jesus raised from the dead. Thank you that Jesus, even at this very moment, is at your right hand. And we know what He is doing. We know that He's praying. And we know who He is praying for. He is praying for us. He is praying for His people. He is praying for men and women and boys and girls from the north and from the south and from the east and from the west. And He is praying for us. So, Heavenly Father, I pray that we would hear your word, that we would accept what you have to say about you, what you have to say about us, and what you have to say about your Son, Jesus, and that we therefore need to fear no accusation, we need to fear no condemnation, and we need to fear no possibility of separation, that nothing and no one can separate us from the love of God, your love that is found in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we come to you in his personal and powerful name. Amen.